The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 3, 4. The word of God speaks to us. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely being merely human? This is God's word to us. Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. Let's uh, pray together for one another. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this moment with my friends. And the reality is like we're, we're going to look at the word of God in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. We're told is, is the very breath of the spirit. Like, this is your book, Holy Spirit. You inspired it. You wrote it through men. And we gather as the church, people who, by the grace of God, who have been chosen and saved, we have the indwelling spirit with us. And, and spirit, you love to glorify Jesus and hold him up and, and reveal truth about the Son of God to us. And so we, we pray that you would help us listen, help us be present, help us draw in, in deeper and truer ways, closer to our Heavenly Father and, and closer to one another in love, in the love of Christ. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said. Amen. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis. I'm contractually obligated to quote C.S. Lewis as a frontline pastor. I got an email telling me it had been too long. So I'm going to kick this one out. He's so good. I actively try to avoid like not referencing him because I want to every Sunday. So I feel like I've been good for a while. So I got to kick it off with, with my man, C.S. And he says, to be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish. These things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. He wrote that in an essay called Of Other Worlds, and he was really talking about writing, but I see that play out just as a father in my family, right? Like, my three-year-old, in a really cute way, often insists that he's a big boy, <laughs> You know, and I actually asked him if I could tell some stories and he, he said, no, daddy, you can't tell your friends about that. And so I regret asking him because I have funny stuff to share, but I need to, I need to, I've learned my lesson, like with children illustrations that comes back to haunt me sometimes. So I'm going to honor my word to my three-year-old, but he does often insist that, that he's a big boy or historically has insisted he's a big boy. He's very concerned with being grown up, with, with being 
able to do what his older brothers and sisters can do. And it's super cute, but it's certainly like evidence of him being the age that he is. See, adults don't make arguments for being an adult. They don't insist on their adultness. <laughs> They're known by being grown-ups by acting like a grown-up. For really mature, we don't insist on it. We don't argue for it. We don't get wrapped up in a concern for our adult status. A three-year-old saying, I'm a big boy, is evidence, in fact, that he's not a big boy yet. A, 33, a 33-year-old saying, I'm a big boy, you know, is, is just evidence that something's really wrong, right? <laughs> I bring all that up because there's this scenario that's happening in the, in the church in Corinth, And these Christians, they're really concerned about being all grown up. They're insisting upon it. They've been telling the Apostle Paul, hey, we're we're all grown up. We're adults. we've, We've leveled up. We're very mature. Maybe, in fact, we're more mature than you, Apostle Paul. And Paul knows better, but he loves this church in such a way that he really longs for them to reach a a real level of maturity in the midst of their immaturity. And this is the problem in the church in Corinth. This church that the Apostle Paul planted likely around five years prior to the writing of this letter, that they had started this dangerous drift into pride. And we've seen this already as we've been here, I think, five weeks in 1 Corinthians. They were increasingly influenced by the culture of the city of Corinth. And that that culture had kind of infected and, and moved into the very culture of the church. And it began to deform, in a way, the culture of the church to to be wrapped up in ideas of wisdom or the good life that were values of the city of Corinth, but were not values of Jesus. And so these Christians in Corinth began to kind of assume they had matured beyond Paul and his message. They were far more grown up than Paul gave them credit for, far wiser than Paul could ever know. In fact, you know, he'd been gone for a little while, so he just wasn't up to speed about how big boyish or big girlish they were at this point in their their life. And they really had reached a whole new level of spirituality altogether, they thought. And in our text today, Paul begins to remind them about things that they had forgotten, things that he had once passed on to them that they, they had lost and they were drifting away from. In a real way, he's bringing them back to their identity, who God is, but who they are in light of what God has done in their lives. And he begins to remind them in this text by bringing them back to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. And as we begin and are going to continue all throughout 1 Corinthians to talk about the Holy Spirit, I just suspect that you guys might have differing reactions even right now. Like some of you might be, be experiencing hearing a pastor begin to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, like an excitement and anticipation. Hey, we're going to talk about the gifts and what the Holy Spirit does, and maybe that's immediately where your heart goes when you think of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And thank God for the gifts and, and the work of the Holy Spirit through, through gifts. We're for that as a church. Praise God for that. I believe they continue today. But that's not what Paul's going to talk about in this text. Or you might actually be experiencing 
a little bit of trepidation or feeling a little nervous. Like, I love Jesus, you might think, and I love my Bible, but when a pastor, preacher begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, I just get a little bit nervous because of hard experiences I've had in the past where maybe I've seen the gifts misused in churches or among Christian friends, and that's understandable. But for both of those groups or anybody in between or somewhere else, I think it's actually noteworthy that when, when I think of, of the Holy Spirit and I think of the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter, my mind, my heart go to chapter 12 and 13 and 14, which we'll get to like maybe a year from now, maybe not. <laughs> it's going to be a while in this book. But it's interesting to note, and what I learned in these last few weeks, that God the Spirit is mentioned more here in chapter 2 than in chapter 12 or 13 or 14. Why is that? What's going on? Well, in our text today, Paul is very intentionally wanting to give insight about the importance of the Spirit in the church. What does the work of the Holy Spirit in the church look like? What is, it, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What does his work look like in your life? Well, Paul here is going to going to share some things about that. He's going to address that in this text. And we're going to take it in two movements, two points, two things Paul wants to address. And the first is this, actual spiritual insight. Actual spiritual insight is the first thing that Paul wants to share with the church in Corinth that we need to see today. Let's look at these first few verses beginning in verse 12 again. Paul writes to this church, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, Paul just said a whole lot there, but the point that Paul is making is this, that God has revealed his wisdom only through, uh, only to people with God the Spirit, through God the Spirit, by the power of God the Spirit. See, when Paul writes in verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the, the world, but the Spirit uh, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Paul is saying that, that without the Spirit, we have no understanding, no insight, no knowledge, no spiritual wisdom that has anything really to do with true, real spiritual wisdom. Nothing truly from God can be understood without God's help, God's revelation. On our own, we have nothing more, Paul is saying, than the spirit of the world. What we can drum up for ourselves, what, what some path that we're trying to forge that we think is going to lead to deep spiritual insight and reality. But Paul is saying, hey, that leads ultimately nowhere. There's no truth of God at the end of that road. But with God, the spirit, he empowers, he enables, he gifts us to understand what God has freely given to us through Christ Jesus, namely who God is, what the meaning of life is, what life is all about, truly who God is so we can truly know who we are. 
Here's Paul's point. Like the spirit isn't some like clandestine person of the Trinity that reveals secret codes and is, is really, you know, hiding things from us and creating this like secret society within the church. Like the, the Corinthians were like very concerned with like a very hyper-spiritual next level kind of secret club of people that really got the spirit. We're hyper-spiritual because we're in on some secret. Paul's saying, no, the Spirit of God is in every Christian, and he's revealing deep wisdom to all who are in Christ Jesus. Actually, to know true spiritual truth means that the Spirit of God has revealed that to you. He isn't some coach choosing between varsity and junior varsity Christians like this church believed. What's the Spirit of, li- what's the Spirit of God like? He reveals to us what God has given for us to know. He reveals truth to anyone who believes and follows Jesus. In verse 13, Paul goes on to say, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. How do we know the truth of God? How do we know what to believe about Jesus? What are we to believe about the reasons we exist and the meaning of life? Paul's saying here, the Spirit of God gifts that truth to us through the message of Jesus. The gospel, the good news, who Jesus is, what he's done, to understand that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Being truly spiritual, knowing reality about God and the reason why we're here, the the very meaning of life, must be a work of the Spirit in the life of any person. So you can go to Amazon and buy a hundred of the top books on spirituality and read every single one, and you'll read a lot of things that present a path to truth, but that's just advice or what Paul's going to say is human wisdom, and that won't truly make you spiritual. I came across a quote this week by a a thinker, an atheist, a a philosopher named Sam Harris, really influential. And he's got this book, Waking Up, and he wrote this. He said, spirituality must be distinguished from religion because people of every faith and of none have had the same sort of spiritual experiences. And Paul's going to say, well, that's actually an example of, of human wisdom And there is only one way to actually have a genuine spiritual experience. Paul's going to fiercely disagree with that statement that we just read out of waking up. He's going to say to know true spirituality actually happens exclusively through the Spirit of God. It's not universal. It's not something that, that everyone everywhere has in different ways, but it's absolutely exclusive through God the Spirit, yet it is freely given in Christ Jesus for anyone who will receive the gift. He goes on in verse 14, Paul, to say, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Hey, like in our own strength, if we're trying to, to forge a path of knowing what's, what's right and what's true and the meaning of life and who God is and, and who we are, we can't do that in our own strength. And so in our own strength, when we are presented with truth from the Holy Spirit, it's just foolish. We're not able to understand it. We don't accept it. We can only understand God with the help of God. But Paul in love is shedding the light on the reality of the very human soul. 
God has come down to reach us so that we can know truth. We can't find truth on our own, but the message of of all of redemptive history is that what we couldn't do on our own, God has done for us freely. That he has pursued us, that he has revealed truth to us, that we need forgiveness, that we have committed crimes against God and rejected God and rebelled against God. Yet in the midst of that, God has pursued us and loved us And the son came and lived a perfect life, the only perfect life ever to be lived on earth. Yet he laid that down as a sacrifice, that life, for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose again, validating, proving to us he is truly who he claimed to be. And then Jesus promised before the cross and after the cross that he would send the Spirit of God to empower us to help us understand the very truth of who he is and what he's done. And Jesus anticipated and promised that the Spirit would would shape and form us and help us know everything that it means to truly be spiritual. So what does this mean for a Christian? Paul tells us in, in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. What does that mean? I think that verse has been kind of hijacked, taken out of context, and, and usually like a really prideful Christian who needs correction will like put this on a coffee mug and be like, the spiritual person judges all things, right? What Paul, what's Paul saying here? He's just simply contrasting what he's saying in the earlier verse, right? That those without the Spirit of God And then those with the Spirit of God, there's a difference in knowing truth. I vividly vividly recall a moment in probably 2021, I think, where I was changing the diaper of my youngest child. And how our, our house works is there's the, all the bedrooms are on one hallway, and so there's lots of traffic on that hallway. And so I'm uh, at the changing table in my boy's room. The, my, my, I have a two-year-old at the time, and I'm changing this diaper, which is you know, something I probably don't do enough, but I do every once in a while, and, uh, or I used to do at least. And one of my children, I forget who it was, walked by and just let out like a guttural like, ugh! you know, which is always helpful, you know, when the older kid is just commenting on, you know, a a diaper changing moment, but just really dramatically just acting, acting out how the stench, just waving their hand in front of their face and just like really just making a big ado about how much the diaper stunk, you know, and it occurred to me that the diaper didn't stink to me. It smelled great in that room, and I was like, oh, yeah, I've had the coronavirus. <laughs> and now I have this temporary superpower of, like, <laughs> just being able to change any diaper. And it's just, I'm not shook. I can handle all this. I'm never grossed out, right? I couldn't smell. I couldn't smell. I don't know that's funny and gross, but a sense of smell is like a grace of God. And that, you know, I've got f- friends that are, are still recovering that from having that same virus. And it's, it's, it's a, a struggle to be missing that. And the point is this, like a person who lacks a sense of smell can't know what's fragrant and beautiful and what's foul. Someone who lacks the spirit can't discern or judge what is spiritually fragrant and beautiful or foul. What Paul is saying here is that 
Christian, by the power of the Spirit, you can discern, you can judge what is right and, and beautiful or false and evil, what is true spiritually, what is life, what is right, what is sacred, what is divine. But the judgment the world makes towards the Christian ultimately doesn't hold weight because they can't discern. They don't have that sense. They don't have that power or ability to discern spiritual truth because they're without the Spirit to help them. So at the end of the day, if you are a follower of Jesus and you feel judged by the world about your spirituality, that doesn't hold weight in the end. And Paul isn't saying that, that you are without judgments coming your way, that the world will attempt to judge people who are following Jesus, and those judgments are indeed painful and hard, right? Paul was himself in prison multiple times. Paul's life came to an end on this earth because he was beheaded by Rome in judgment for following Jesus. And some of us in this room are experiencing real judgments coming our way from people who don't follow Jesus because we faithfully are. Some of us have adult children that have withdrawn relationship because of your faith in Jesus. Some parents in this room have, have or some of us have parents in this room who are distant and cold to us because we've really begun to follow Jesus. Or some of us have experienced distance from friendship because if you've, as you've begun to take your faith seriously, you've, you've begun to feel those friends withdraw from you. And those judgments really hurt, but Paul's saying this, that is an ultimate judgment. The, the world's judgment doesn't get the final say on your life. God gets the final word on your life. And although those are painful in the moment, that there's honor in eternity for every suffering we experience now, that none of that holds weight. And ultimately, you will stand before the, the judge of the universe who will look at you because of your faithful service and say, daughter, son, well done. A world without the ability to sense true spirituality can't judge the truly spiritual person, is what Paul is saying. To make this point, he writes this in verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Like Paul so often does, he's supporting his point by, by quoting the prophet Isaiah. I was reminded of my friend Don Guttridge, who was with us for years. We did his funeral last year, and, and his son, as he was preaching his funeral up here, said that his dad always said, Paul is great, but he plagiarizes Isaiah. If you knew, if you knew Don. <laughs> he's not plagiarizing Don, he's just backing up his points. But... He's referencing Isaiah 40, verse 13 here. He's saying we can't understand God's wisdom without him showing us. So it's silly to think we could give God advice, let alone understand God. But followers of Jesus have been given the Spirit to help us, and that means that we have... This is such like a... Something so easy to read by quickly. It's such just like a... Oh, it sounds like it would be in the Bible. You're going to read something Paul would say, but let's like slow down and actually take in what Paul is saying about you if you were a Christian this morning. But we have the mind of Christ. The very Son of God. The only perfect person. The only person to live a, a perfect life who 
is the wisest, most mature person to ever walk the face of the earth, have the, the depths of the wisdom of true spirituality. If you were in Christ, you have the spirit of God, which means you have the mind of Christ, Paul says. By the presence and the power of the spirit, the very center of our mind, the foundation of our life is Jesus, his life, his cross, his resurrection. And this is why it's so sad to see what the church in Corinth is doing. This is the gift that they have. This is who they are in Christ Jesus, yet they have this power within them by the power of the Spirit. They have this access to true spirituality, and yet in their immaturity, they're drifting towards this version of spirituality, this this dead-end road of spirituality that's championed in the city of Corinth. And they're moving away from the wisdom of God. For the last, let's say, 20 years, it's been kind of increasingly popular for, for people, particularly younger people, to kind of define themselves as it relates to their spiritual life as spiritual but not religious. I'm sure you guys have all heard that. And maybe that's something that you've even, you know, in the last 20 years, the phrase you use to describe yourself, spiritual but not religious. I did some like research this week that actually has its foundations in dating websites. <laughs> you know, that's where it came from. It's like, well, I'm not a cold-hearted atheist, but I'm not also like a deacon in my church, you know, and I'm just, I'm kind of finding my own path. I'm spiritual but not religious, right? I'll go to, I'll go to church with you on Easter and maybe Christmas, you know, like I'm dateable, Right? That's what, it, that's what it came from, spiritual but not religious. But it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And now, according to The Atlantic, one in five people in the United States describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. And it means something like, I'm interested in spiritual things. I know there's more to this life than what we see with our own eyes. But I have no interest in, in any view of spirituality that, that is exclusive or is going to hold above me absolutes. I'm not into organized religion. I want nothing to do with institutions. I follow a path that seems right to me. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. The Barna Research Group shared that the defining attribute of this group is one in five Americans is freedom to define their own spirituality. I read this article that quoted this this professor, and he said, hey, what this means for me is I don't have to look for some higher power to give me insight into spirituality. I'm looking within myself. The spiritual but not religious say they don't need any direction or help or revelation about spiritual truth. They look for that truth within. And that sounds really new and fresh, but Paul's saying like, hey, this, this view, this path was being walked 2,000 years ago in Corinth. It's not new. It's been around for a while. And it was creeping into the very heart of the church in Corinth. And I think Paul has a really profound thing that he's saying here. He's saying people that say they're spiritual but not religious, in Paul's view, they're getting it backwards. The reality is they're really religious, but they just aren't really spiritual. 
They're doing this build-a-bear religion, right? Where it's like, I like this, I like this. I'm looking in myself to kind of create my own preferences, my own buffet of, of spirituality. But it's, it's just religious practice that's empty of power. It's not true spirituality. There's no such thing as spiritual but not religious. Paul's saying you're just religious. You're not spiritual. Because Paul's saying, hey, without Jesus Christ, a king and savior, you don't have the spirit of God. And so you can't be spiritual at all without the spirit of God. You can't understand or grasp or take hold of spiritual realities without the very spirit who, who by the power of God was there at the beginning, made all things, made you. What does this mean for us? Well, if you're here this morning and you're seeking spiritual truth, maybe you're back in church for the, the first time in a long time, or you're just here seeking, seeking something deep, something real, answers to life, why you're here, who God is. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing to be seeking, seeking. Praise God for that. We're, we're thrilled that you're here this morning. But... Paul's saying something true here, which is like, hey, if you're looking within yourself for those answers, you're never going to find them. You need God. All of us need God. And there's this moment in Scripture where, where people who for the first time, a huge group of people for the first time, realized that, that they didn't have true spirituality. They thought they did. But in light of truly seeing Jesus and, and understanding who he was by the power of the Spirit, it's in Acts chapter 2, this group of people, they ask, like, hey, what do we do? We thought we were spiritual, but we're not. We don't have real spiritual life. What do we do? And the Apostle Peter, this is what he told them. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. He said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift, not something that you earn or deserve, something freely given. You'll receive a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. So if you're here this morning and you're seeking spiritual truth and reality, it's because God is calling you. And the free gift for you is to, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Be baptized. Receive the Spirit as the free gift he is. And guess what? All things that are spiritual, the very depth of the knowledge of, of, the, of God, the mind of Christ himself, is yours by the power of the Spirit through Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian... We can just recognize how do we respond to this? What does it mean? What Paul's saying here is that culture is really trying to divorce faith in Jesus from spirituality, increasingly so. And Paul's saying, hey, Christian, you have the spirit of God. Nobody is more spiritual than you. True spiritual life was made known to you in Christ. You have the mind of Christ. So you can be bold and confident and gracious and loving and sharing spiritual truth. You have the very mind of Christ in the city of Edmond. So that means in a culture that is, is really concerned and championing independence, we get to boast in our dependence on God, that we need grace and saving, that we're not self-reliant, we're, we're hopeless without God to know anything truly spiritual. We couldn't save ourselves, but we've been saved in Christ Jesus 
It means that in a city marked by disunity so often that we get to resound with unity, that we get to love one another because we have the mind of Christ and we've been struck by grace and so we extend the grace we've received. That leads us to the last thing Paul wants to say to Corinth. And he has some hard things to say. This is the second thing. Paul wants to talk about arrested spiritual development. This church is experiencing arrested development. Not, not the show, not, not the band. It's a great band. You should rediscover that group from the 90s. But, but the, the actual like sad state of what they are regressing to as a church in their spirituality. Look at what Paul has to say. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a a human way, only a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul's saying, hey, here's evidence. In light of the Spirit revealing all things and, and true spirituality being, being something that we can only receive by the power of the Spirit, I want to point out, Paul, saying how you guys are having your ears plugged to what the Spirit is saying and kicking and screaming against the work he's trying to do. And evidence of that is how you're marked by deep divisions. The thing about like blind spots is that you're not aware of them, right? And like the, the, the silliest question of all time is like, what blind spots do you have? Tell me your blind spots. It's like, I can't see them. I don't know, right? And so this church, they have this epic blind spot when it comes to their spiritual maturity. And Paul in love is saying, you don't see this about yourselves and I'm going to shine a light on it. And I'm going to be really real and honest and it's going to hurt you because you consider yourself so grown up. But in reality, you're not. You think you're giants of spiritual insight and maturity and wisdom. And Paul's saying the hard thing they need to hear and his message is this, y'all are babies, You act like babies. You have the spirit of God in you to help you know the mind of Christ, but but you're acting like you don't. You're acting just like the broken, prideful, divisive city that you live in. Paul says you're people of the flesh, people acting out of unredeemed base, disappointing human nature. Now, Paul, Paul isn't saying that these people aren't Christians. Remember everything that he's written so far. He's saying, hey, you've been sanctified. You have the righteousness of Jesus. The Corinthians are Christians. They're just very poor examples at this moment in the life of the church of Christians. They have the indwelling spirit of God, yet they're acting like the world around them. And Paul's saying, hey, when you came to faith, whether it was three, four, five years ago, Paul's saying, I I fed you like babies because you were babies in your faith. I taught you the very basics of the gospel and I long to take you into the depths of the gospel, but but in your infancy and your immaturity, I can't take you there because you're still babies. And Paul's not saying, hey, I taught you the gospel and I wanted to move past that. Read Romans, right? (laughs) He probably wanted to write Romans to this church, but he couldn't. 
the, the depth and the, the beauty of the implications of the gospel, the, the, the jewel that it is, the message of Jesus and what he's done. But Paul's saying, look, y'all aren't ready for the, the deep, true implications of the gospel. I got to take you back to the basics because of the disunity and the immaturity that you live out. What does this mean for us? I think there's just two questions that I think we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us with. I think the first is this. And everyone needs to to grow in unity in some way. So I think it's really tempting in moments like this to think about, you know, a spouse or somebody in community group or that person at that other church. And I just want to lovingly invite us to like draw a circle around our own life and say, hey, Holy Spirit, what does this mean for me? And the first question is, how are you needing to grow in unity? Because we all need to grow in unity in some way. We're not perfectly unified. So what, what does that look like? How can we grow in maturity by growing in unity? Does it look like, you know, having like healthy conflict where people that that we have disagreement with or offense or brokenness with. We don't triangulate and talk to other people about them to just feel like a momentary release or we don't gossip or we're not passive aggressive, but we actually act like the family of God where we go to each other in love and honesty and work it out. Maybe unity looks like actually sticking around long enough to experience real unity. Maybe when you process the question, how do you grow in unity? It means that you don't go to a new church every couple of years. And when it gets hard, you don't just transfer to another group of believers and start over again and just go through that cycle and cycle and you kind of make the, the rounds of churches in Edmond. But you stay put when things get hard and you grow together. And maybe that means that you've been here for a little while and there's a community you go back to. Or that if God is calling you here, that that you resolve to actually have a stake and put down roots and experience the family of God, even when it's hard. How are you needing to grow in unity? Maybe that looks like just simply being known. This church is probably just big enough where you can sneak in and sneak out and, and be on the edges of the periphery. And, and God is probably calling you in unity, if you haven't yet, to actually experience gospel community for the first time, to, to get in a group this fall, to, to receive the love of God through people, to give the love of God through your brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to be known and to know. How are you needing to grow in unity? And then the second question is, are you needing to grow in maturity and dependence on the Spirit of God? Just again, you before the Lord ask, hey, Holy Spirit, how are you longing to and desiring for me to grow in maturity and dependence on you? And we did like an entire series about this over the summer, right? But it's good to come back to. Hey, do I love and honor the word as you're calling me to, Spirit of God? The, the, the word that you wrote for me to know truth that I can only understand by your power. Do I need to resolve to honor the Bible and be in Scripture more? Am I praying like I'm called to? Am I serving? Am I resting? Am I giving? So there's just two simple questions. They're hard questions. They take some bravery. How are we needing to grow in unity? How are we needing to grow 
in maturity. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you as we've, we've sung this morning, as we've heard that it's your kindness that leads to repentance. And if we're a, a Christian this morning and, and we feel conviction, that's not because you're upset with us. It's actually in love. And each and every one of us, me more than anybody, need to think through these questions. And I'll posture ourselves in a way really to hear from you, Spirit, and respond in obedience and faith in ways that you're calling us to move towards one another in love because of the love we've received to you and, and grow up in ways that you're calling each of us to continue to mature because you love us. And for my friends here that are just seeking truth and seeking real spirituality, I pray that, that you'd give them the gift of faith. The Spirit of God, they would know that, that nothing spiritual can actually be known without you. That we all worship something, even if it's ourselves or our own comfort. But there's only one who is worth worshiping, and that is this you, God. So help us see you rightly and then respond rightly. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.